concerts and all the travel and all the money that you've made and all the fans that you have all over the world and everything that you got to see and experience and do in these last 20 some odd years. I guess the question that I have for you is, have you come to a point in your life where you've truly found that satisfaction? Now, if you remember the lyrics of the song, it goes, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no. Well, he looked at her and he thought for a second. He said, but you know what? He goes, no, I haven't, but I keep trying. Boy, you know, I thought it was fascinating because he would have achieved what many of us think is going to be the answer to all of life's problems and are the things that will someday bring satisfaction in our life. And yet he realized over the period of time and all the things that he experienced that he still didn't have the satisfaction that he was looking for. And so as we go through this, I can't help but ask the question, how about you? How are you? Are you satisfied? Content with life? Have you found what you're looking for that will bring satisfaction to your life? Are you a little restless and you're still looking for something like Mick Jagger is looking for something that will bring satisfaction to his life? So those are the questions that we're going to deal with. What I'd like you to do for a moment is if you're brave enough to do it, make a mental note of what you think as a goal in your life that if you would, be, that if you would achieve it or that you would acquire it, what do you think that would be that would bring satisfaction to your life? All of us right now have an idea of what that would be. If I have this, then I'll be satisfied. Or if I achieve this, then I'll be satisfied. Make a mental note of it because that's what we're going to deal with as we go through this. Or if you're even brave enough, why don't you write it down and then give it to the person next to you. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, you want, to, you want to know the truth about what you're seeking after, I'm sure. So if you wrote it down and gave it to the person next to you, and if we touch on this a little bit today, they can look at you and say, aha, <laughs> this isn't going to work for you. So you might as well stop looking for it. But that's what we're going to deal with. I mean, every one of us have an idea of what's going to bring satisfaction to our life. Now, that seems like a, a cruel way to do it, but the truth of the matter is that's exactly what many of us are looking for, something to bring satisfaction. So I want you for a moment, just kind of imagine with me for a minute that you're sitting at home, you're all alone, it's a quiet evening, and there's a knock on your door. You go to the door, and there's a messenger from the king. And the messenger from the king says, King Solomon would love to have you join him this evening for some coffee in his library. Just the two of you, nobody else around. He wants to just spend some time with you, a little one-on-one -on -one time, just to have a ch chance to, just to chat a little bit. So you go with the messenger, and you go into the castle, and you look around, and he escorts you into the library. And there's a seat over near the, the fireplace, and he gives you a cup of coffee, and he says, here, would you just sit here for a moment, I'll get the king. So he goes, and he gets the king, and the king walks in, and he sits in the chair next to you, and you're drinking your coffee, and you're looking over at the king, and you're looking at the fireplace, and you're a little nervous about this whole thing. There's nobody around but the two of you. So you have an opportunity to ask him anything that you want to ask him. It's yours for an hour. He's yours. You can just ask anything you want. And he's willing to be honest with you, open with you, and just share with you anything that you need to know. So you take a gulp of coffee and you look at the fire and you glance over at the king. And in the temples and in his beard you see a little gray. And you notice some aging wrinkles in his leathered face. And yet on the other hand you realize also there's a gleam in his eye. There's a youthful gleam in his eye. And yet he's older and yet here you are in your youth and you look at him and there's a contrast. And there's a contrast not just in the age but there's a contrast in the restlessness in your life compared to the peace and serenity that you see in his life. 
So you want to ask him the question, but you're afraid to ask him because you don't know how he's going to respond to it. And yet, on the other hand, you want to take advantage of the opportunity, so you want to ask him the things that you've always wanted to know. And so you think about it, you hesitate, you take another drink of coffee, and then you take another gulp of, you know, take another, yet another deep breath. And then you look at him, and you begin like a dam bursting forth, you begin to ask him a million questions. What's life all about? What will bring satisfaction? What can I do? Which direction should I head? Can you give me some advice in this area of my life? And over and over again, all these questions start to come out. But the one question that you finally get to is the question that underlines every other question that you ask them. And that question is, how can I have peace in my life like I see in yours? How can I experience the same sense of peace and joy and serenity that I see in your life and I know I don't have in mind. And I know as I sit here, it's obvious that I'm restless. And I know as I sit here, as I, as I contrast myself and my demeanor to yours, that there's something different about your life. Have you ever seen a person that's like that? Have you ever met a person who has, there's, a, there's an, uh, an aura about them of peace and joy and contentment? Because really, that's what's synonymous with satisfaction, isn't it? If I'd ask you if you're looking for satisfaction, many of us would say, well, I'm looking for peace in my life. I'm looking for some joy in my life. I'm looking for contentment in my life. Basically, what I'm looking for is to get rid of this restlessness that I have. So, hey, King, since we have this opportunity, would you mind sharing with me what have you discovered in your life that has brought this peace that you now have? So he kind of smiles for a minute and he looks at you. And he begins to tell you about things that he discovered won't bring satisfaction to your life. Because in order for you to understand what will bring satisfaction, he wants to take you through the whole thought process with him. So he goes back to his younger days and he begins to look at what he went through in his life. And he wants you to identify with him because if he just gave you the conclusion up front, you wouldn't buy into it. So what he wants you to do is he wants to bring you along slowly. He wants you to sit down and take a look at what you just penciled down there for a second or the thought that you have in your mind. And he wants to challenge you in that area of your thinking. He wants to do what I want to do, and that is, if you would be honest for a moment and say, if I do this, that's what's going to bring satisfaction. I want you to, to think it through, because I want to challenge you in that area. Really? Do you think that'll bring you satisfaction? Okay, well, let's look at that and see if that's true. Because th as you sit in this library, you've got ideas what's going to bring satisfaction in your life, and the only way you're really going to address whether it's true or not is to be upfront with them. Our problem that I've seen is we're not willing to be truthful about what we think will answer that need in our life because we fear that it's not going to do it. We don't want to hear what others have to say about that, so we refuse to ask them what they've discovered. So now you have an opportunity. You're sitting before the king, and you say, King, why don't you tell me what you found will bring satisfaction in your life. Turn with me in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and this will be the session or the scene that takes place. This is what he's going to share with you as you ask that question. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what he's doing is he's going to share with you what won't bring satisfaction. Ten pursuits that will not bring satisfaction. He's tried them, he's done it, and he found out that it left him empty at the end of all of it. Ecclesiastes 2. So picture a moment, you're sitting by the fireplace and he's talking to you and he's, he's addressing that question, what will give you peace and joy and satisfaction in your life? He said, well, I said to myself, he's taking you back on this journey, a carefully conducted experiment that he did in his own life. He's going to take you back with him. And he said, I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. 
He said, and behold, it too was futility. I said, of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? He said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me, and all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold, from my heart, withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, all was striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He's taking you on a trip, and he wants you to see what he went about and how he went about trying to find pleasure. One of the things I want to share with you right off the bat is the first thing that comes to mind and you have to take note of is he said, I said to myself, it's important to note that Solomon set out on this journey to fulfill that which he had envisioned in his own mind would take care of the need that he had in his life. He went about seeking counsel from nobody but himself. I find it fascinating today that many of us are on the same journey looking for satisfaction and yet we take no time to seek counsel from anyone else. We certainly don't want to ask the person who has achieved what we think will bring satisfaction in our life, whether it's done that in their life or not. Because even if they say no, and even if they tell us that it didn't do what they thought it would do, somehow we're different than they are, and that we'll handle it differently, and, and we'll respond differently. So we, don't, we certainly don't want to ask anybody what they think. We certainly don't want to get any counsel. And it's amazing to me, the man who is as wise as Solomon would, would uh, overlook an important area of, of his life, and that is to seek counsel in the area in which he was about to jump into. And he looked back on that and said, boy, you know, it sure was foolish that I didn't seek some counsel on it. It could have saved me a lot of time and a lot of aggravation in the direction that I'm going. See, our problem is that we don't want to seek counsel because we don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear somebody challenge us in our thinking or our thought process. We certainly don't want to have somebody challenge us with our ideas versus what God has to say about them and see where the two of them line up. See, we like to kind of twist it and bend it a little bit and hope that God will somehow change for us. But the problem is that God says He made us in His image and His likeness. Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it goes on to talk about the effectiveness of the Word of God. And so what we do is we don't want to seek any, any counsel in the area that we're about to head, and we certainly don't want to seek God's opinion of it or what He has to say with it because we're afraid that He may, His ways may conflict with ours. And then we're put in a dilemma because we've got to decide whether we're going to believe God or not, that we're going to trust in Him or not. See, the, the, the same man who wrote this also wrote, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is destruction. See, he understood this because he went through the same process. The question is, are we accountable to one another? Are we willing to seek counsel in the area that we're about to enter into to see if it will truly bring us satisfaction or not, or to see if it's the way that seems right to us, but in its end is going to bring destruction? We don't like to do that. I, you know, I'm faced with it all the time. 
And one of the sad things is I find people that are close to us that when we challenge them in their thinking and try to line them up with, well, do you realize what the Bible says about that? That if they don't like what we have to say, they'll cut us off. They won't talk to us. We're dealing with it right now. Going through this marriage series, it's amazing to me. I've got a lot of people who have called me and say, hey, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? Well, I don't really think a whole bunch, and it, and it works out a lot better for me if I don't do that. But I can tell you what passage and what chapter and what verses you ought to read, and you ought to think carefully, consider what God has to say. See, because it's amazing to me, people act like I wrote this stuff. <laughs> I didn't write this. I'm just sharing with you, and I'm helping you, maybe to help you to understand what God is trying to get across. But it's amazing to me how many people want to be affirmed of what they're doing. They want a pat on the back. They want to be told that what you're doing is okay. It's fine. And gee, you know what? And the, more, and the closer we are to somebody, and if they're a family member, or if they're a friend, or if they're somebody we spend a lot of time with, then we have the temptation to want to soften it a little bit for them and say, gee, you know what? You're right. I don't blame you for doing what you're doing. But we can't do that. See, we don't have a choice. Either we're going to please God or we're going to please men. That's the whole problem with God's program. I'd love to be able to tell people, oh, you know what, go ahead and do what you want to do. You want to be happy? Go ahead and do whatever you think is going to bring you happiness. But the problem is, not only can I not do that, but I also know that what you think is going to bring happiness isn't going to bring you happiness. So it's not like I'm saying, go ahead and do what you want to do, because if you do do what you want to do and it, doesn't, and it violates what God says, you're not going to be happy anyway. You're heading down the wrong road. You're heading down a road of destruction. So now I've got to wrestle with, do I care enough about you to confront you on the, ro the road that you're heading to tell you the truth about what God has to say and then let you deal with it and make up your own decisions? That's the biggest problem that I find with dealing with one another and holding each other accountable to the Word of God. We risk not being liked by people. And to be honest with you, it breaks my heart. It'll tear, it'll tear you apart if you really think about it. But if you, if you dwell on the fact that that's what God has us to do, and we've got a choice of pleasing God or men, well, in the long run, we might as well please God because that's the only thing that matters anyway, and I don't really care whether I make you happy or not. And you all know that. You've been here long enough to realize that. <laughs> I don't go out of my way to make you happy, but whatever. Getting back to where we're at. So anyway, I think it's, it's critical that we understand the direction that Solomon's going because this experiment that he's about to enter into was one that he sought out after himself. I said to myself, great, that's the worst person you can ever talk to whenever you're trying to make a decision. And we know you and trust us, we know enough about you that you don't want to say to yourself and you don't want to think things through on your own. Why don't you share it with somebody else that may be able to help you? So, so what he said was, I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And he said, and it too was futility. The first stop that he was going to journey on is the, is the stop that all of us are buying into, and that is satisfaction. I mean, pleasure to find satisfaction. Oh, you know what? We would, ha we would be led to believe that if you just please yourself, and I don't know how many times you hear this, but if, oh, you know what? If I just please myself, then I'll be able to please other people because then I'll be a happier, more fulfilled person. Then I'll be able to give more of myself because I'm pleasing myself. So he went about a life of pleasure, trying every way that he could to please himself. TV, radio, advertisements, slogans, jingles, commercials, everything that we're bombarded with has an underlying message and sandwiched in between everything else is a subliminal message that says, you know what, why don't you just please yourself? You deserve it. You work hard. You deserve it. Please yourself. 
And that's the direction that we're being led to believe will bring us to some point of satisfaction in our life. So we take a look at it. And the problem is this is not some ultra-modern philosophy. This dates back, as far as you can think of, the Greeks coined a term, eros, and the Epicureans lived a life that said, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For tomorrow you die. Isn't that, wasn't that their philosophy? If you believe that that's the truth, and Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, if the, God, if the resurrection's not true, then everything that we preach is in vain, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the problem is, if that's not true, and I'm going to show you something in a second that proves that it isn't, but can you imagine, if you believe that tomorrow you're going to die, and that's the end of your existence, and there's nothing afterwards, and there's no accountability, and there's no direction that you're going, then why wouldn't you just have a good time? But the problem that I have is, if that's the truth, then why wouldn't a good time be fulfilling? If there is no tomorrow, and there is nothing after death, and that's the end of our existence, then why wouldn't it be fulfilling to go out and just have a good time? It isn't, is it? There's something lacking to it. See, Solomon had the answer for it, and this is what he said in, in the seventh chapter. He said, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. You know what he's saying? He's saying that, hey, you know what? Death brings a startling revelation into our life. Saying the wise person considers when he sees somebody die that, that life is certainly brief at best. And that there must be something after life. There must be something greater in life. There must be something beyond life. And he says that those who are wise understand that. If you're out living a life just to please yourself, then God says you're a fool. Because he also says that you're going to give an account one day for what you're doing. There's no choice to live a life of, of childish irresponsibility. God says you're going to give an account for everything you do. Every person on the face of the earth that's ever been born, that ever lived here, is going to give an account before Almighty God. See, if you understand that, then all of a sudden a life of pleasure and foolishness takes on a whole new meaning. You go, uh-oh, i got to answer someday for what I'm doing. And Solomon concluded that, that pleasure was futile. It was empty. It doesn't bring satisfaction. It doesn't bring any satisfaction at all. One man writes this. He says, Pleasure offers to lift us above the routine. So much of our living seems bound to the ordinary. It is hobbled by the patterns we learned in childhood. It is grooved by the habits we developed as teenagers. It is fettered by the cords of conformity our culture puts upon us. Often we long to kick over the traces and bolt off on our own free course. Pleasure lets us do that. Temporarily, we can hang our inhibitions in the hallway and go to the party without them. See, we all have a desire to do that. We all have a desire to please ourselves. We all have a, de a desire to run from our responsibilities. We all struggle with that. We wrestle with that. And he said, you know what? And you can do that temporarily. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're given an illustration about the temporary pleasures of this life. And we find it in the life of a man named Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. See, all of us wrestle with this. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, hey, there's no temptation that's overtaken you, but it's common to man. See, all of us go through the same thing. You're not weird if you're wrestling with wanting to flee from responsibilities. You're not strange if you're wrestling with wanting to run away from accountability. Hey, that's a struggle that every person on the face of the earth goes through. The problem is, how do we respond to that temptation? 
That's what we're going to be dealing with. That's what God's going to deal with. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see a man named Moses. In verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. You know what's amazing? It's a little catchy little phrase, and I like it. It says, When Moses had grown up. When Moses had grown up, you know, and we've got such an, a, a fear of, quote, growing up in our society. I may be getting older, but I refuse to grow up, the bumper sticker says. We don't want to grow up. We, we want to we fight it every way that we can, and we don't want anybody to tell us that we're growing older. And so now we have all these interesting implants that we can now place in our body to make us somehow look younger. That's an amazing thing, a buttocks implant. Now, can you even imagine for a moment, you know, what we're coming to? It's an amazing thing. The front page of the accent section three days ago was like, I was running through that. Buttocks implant, this is the best one yet. But it's like, can you imagine sitting down? I mean, and you sit down in a hard chair, and you sit next to the person, you hear them go clank, you know? They're busted right there, right in a way. You just got it right there. Hey. But the point is, Moses said, hey, you know what? When he grew up, he realized it was better to please God than to enjoy temporary pleasures. Can I ask you a question? What pleasure are you pursuing that you think will bring satisfaction to your life? What is it going to be? See, that's the trip that he's going to take us on. This is the journey to, that we're going through with him. So he said, the first thing is, I want to please myself. But you know what I find out about pleasure? It didn't do the trick. He said, so I thought what I'd do is I'd head off onto a whole different direction. And I'd head off onto uh, the direction of laughter. Let's go and just have a good time. Let's just kind of like party, you know what I mean? Let's go to the laugh stop, the uh, comedy store, the improv. Let's go and let's hit the beat. Let's get as many good stories and jokes that we can find. Let's just laugh and have a good time. Because, see, that's really what life is all about. So we move on to this step. And he said, of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Boy, you know, there's nothing like a good story. There's nothing like a good sense of humor. In fact, the Bible says that, you know, that a merry heart is good medicine for, the, for those who are anxious. That it's okay to laugh at yourself. It's okay to have a good time. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is if you're on a pursuit to find satisfaction in laughter, if you're on the happy hour circuit, so to speak, just looking for fun and good times, he's saying that's not going to do the trick for you. He says, for as the crackling of the thorn bush under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. And this, is, this too is futility. Ecclesiastes 7.6. I like it. In Proverbs 14.13 we read, Even in laughter the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. It's an amazing thing. We see a whole world around us who are trying to drown their sorrow, so to speak, in having uh, a sense of humor. Let's laugh about it. Let's have a good time. Let's joke about it. Let's hide what we're really feeling because we don't want to have to deal with what's on the inside. And so even Solomon in all his wisdom said, Hey, you know what? There's a lot of people who are putting on a front. There are a lot of people who are putting on the, the jokes and they're telling the stories and they're cutting up and they're having a good time. But you know what? If the truth would be known and they'd let you know, underneath all of it, there's some real hurts that need to be dealt with. See, it's a defense mechanism. It's a lot easier to make a joke about it, be sarcastic about it, than to be honest and open about dealing with what's going on in your life. Several years ago, there was a show that was on TV called Chico and the Man. Chico and the Man had a guy on there, Jack Al I think it was Jack Alverson and Freddie Prinz. Freddie Prinze was the comedian. He was having a great time. He was, oh, he was the funniest guy that came out of Hollywood, and it was just wonderful. And, uh, man, he was hilarious. The guy was funnier than can be. 
But in one of his last interviews that he gave, he, he gave this quote, and he said, you know what? I can't hear the laughter anymore. Two weeks later, he took a gun and he blew his brains out. I know what he's talking about. I can't hear the laughter anymore. You know what he's talking about? Right there. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. That's what he's talking about. See, God's saying that, hey, you know what? There's a time to be funny, and there's a time to be serious. There's a time to have pleasure in your life, and there's a time to recognize your accountability before God that you cross the line. God's not saying not to enjoy life. This book is a book filled with joy. It's 17 times. Every section ends with a theme of joy. It's read by the Jews on the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast of joy. This book is a book of joy. God wants you to enjoy life more than anybody else would ever want you to enjoy your life. He wants you to be satisfied more than anything that you'd ever feel in a sense of satisfaction. But what he's saying is that you're not going to get it just cutting up and having a good time. You're not going to get it just pleasing yourself. It's not going to work. There's a story of a man who was deeply depressed. Just tremendously depressed. He was anxious every day. Every day that he woke up, he, he was just he was as melancholy as can be. He hid in his room. He didn't want to go out. And finally, a friend of his talked him into going to see a psychiatrist. And so this man went to the psychiatrist, and the doctor said, what's the problem? He said, doctor, I don't know, but I'm just so depressed. I can find no joy in my life. There's nothing worth living. Life's not worth living. I don't know what to do. And the doctor thought for a second. He said, you know what? There's a great show in town. And there's an Italian clown who has come to town that is the highlight of the show. This guy is leaving people rolling in the aisles. He's hilarious. And you know what? Basically, you know what? All you need to do is just go laugh a little bit. Have a good time. That'll solve your problem. And at that, this man turned and he walked toward the exit. And the doctor said, well, wait a minute. I've got some tickets right here. I'll give them to you. And the man turned around and with dejection and looking at the ground, he said, doctor, I am that clown. You ever think about that? Hey, what about the funny people in our life? What's going on in their life? You think that laughter is the key to satisfaction in your life? I read an article a couple weeks ago on TV Guide about a guy named Arsenio Hall. Arsenio Hall has one of the hottest shows that are on television right now from a rating standpoint. He is just climbing the charts. He's having a great time. And in this article, you know what he said? He said, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that tomorrow they're not going to laugh anymore. I'm afraid tomorrow it's going to be all over. I'm afraid that when I wake up, the rating's going to be poor, they're going to cancel my show, and I'm going to be sent back to Cleveland where it all started. Well, that put the fear in anybody, wouldn't it? <laughs> when you stop and think about it. But the point that he was making, we can't lose it. We can't lose the fact that just laughter isn't going to do it. I mean, you ever been in a place where you heard like three or four funny jokes all at one time? First one's funny, second one's eh, not quite as funny, even, if it, even though if it would have just told that one it, you know, by itself, it would have been hilarious. Third one isn't quite as funny, the fourth one is. I mean, it's like, how many jokes in a row can you tell somebody before they kind of lose interest in laughter? See, that's what really happens. You've been there, I've been there, laughter isn't going to do it. But see, the problem is if we're going through this, the pleasure's not going to do it, laughter's not going to do it, then what's going to do it? Well, see, then what we're going to do is a combination of all of them. And uh, what Solomon said was in uh, verse 3, he said, so you know what I thought? Hey, I explored my mind with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. The answer to finding satisfaction in our day and age is, hey, turn to drugs and turn to alcohol. 
have a, have a trip. Have a nice day. You know, have a couple of drinks. Do some coke. Have a good time. Enjoy it. Because that will bring satisfaction to your life. See, and that's what the struggle and the dilemma is. And the problem that I have here is this guy isn't talking about just some drunken binge. He's talking about intellectually, he said, I explored with my mind. I set about on a journey to figure out how alcohol can enhance the way that I live. I'm not talking about a drunken binge. He's not talking about hugging the porcelain all night long, you know, because you deserve it. You had a wonderful week, and so you deserve to be hanging in the toilet, you know, all Saturday night. It's a wonderful thought. I'm not sure how we buy into that, but, I mean, have you seen people like that? Hey, I deserve to go get ripped and blitzed on the weekend. I deserve to be sick for two days afterwards. I deserve it. I work hard. Well, hey, more power to you, buddy. I mean, what, what are you going to say to somebody like that? Obviously, they're not dealing with a full deck. So, but see, the problem is, here's what, here's what uh, one Hebrew scholar wrote about it. H.C. Leopold wrote this. He said, To nourish my flesh with wine should be taken as a reference to a consumption of wine which enables a man to get the highest possible enjoyment by a careful use of it, so that appetite is sharpened, enjoyment enhanced, and the finest bouquets sampled and enjoyed. Approximating or falling into drunkenness is plainly, plainly not under consideration. The very thought of such crude extravagance is barred by the expression, my mind was still keeping control by means of wisdom. In other words, what he's saying is, here was a carefully conducted experiment. Here was a guy that went out and with his meal he had the finest of wines and champagne that you can have. To enjoy life to the fullest. He said that must be the ticket. Isn't it, so fun Isn't it funny how our society, it's like on a special occasion, you're supposed to go out and buy an expensive bottle of something. Buy an expensive bottle of champagne, buy an expensive uh, imported wine. See, that's the way that we're supposed to celebrate something special in our life. As if somehow that's going to do it. In fact, I've talked to people after they've won a World Series. I've talked to some of the guys that have been there and they've been throwing champagne around the locker room. Said it's the worst thing in the world to celebrate with. It's so sticky. You get it in your eyes. It burns like crazy. It ruins your contact lenses. And yet all of us sit on the, at home and we watch the TV going, oh, man, wouldn't that be satisfying to be in that situation? And they're all going, man, they can't wait to get in the shower and get the junk off of them. There's nothing satisfying about that. But we're being led to believe that. I like what one man writes about cocaine. He says, a little line of white powder that invites you to snort it up into your system holds out a feeling. He says, it holds out a promise that says, that'll do it, man. That'll do it for you. It feels so good. Why don't you do it? He says, and it does. He says, it does feel good at first. It keeps its promise temporarily, but it doesn't have staying power. He says, so it takes more of the same, and so it gets more expensive. By and by, you start caring less and less about the game you're playing or the job you're doing or the home you're trying to run or the business or the practice. It says, the feel-good promise lacks staying power. As one user admitted to me, I could never get a feeling as good as the first time, but I kept on trying. Sound familiar? But I try and I try and I try and I try, but I just can't get that sense of satisfaction. I did it first, but I don't anymore. And see, we become a victim of our pursuit of satisfaction. We become addicted to that which we think will bring satisfaction. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end is destruction. You're heading down a path that says, hey, please yourself. Just have a good time. Be irresponsible. Don't worry about your accountability. Hey, go out and have a good time. Get drunk. Do some drugs. Hey, have fun. You deserve it. You work hard. You know what God says? In the end is destruction. In the end, you're going to be sorry that you're going that direction. 
But those are some of the things that Solomon did, and those are what he went after. And that's why the Bible says, Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, that's dissipation. There's no profit to it, there's no benefit to it. It's a waste of time. Don't get drunk with wine, but he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, think about life as God would have you think about life. Do things God's way and not your own way. That's the, the, the temptation that we have and we struggle with. Proverbs 21.1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxica intoxicated by it is not wise. There's no wisdom in that. You're heading down a wrong way street. And God's just trying to catch your attention while you're heading that direction, trying to find satisfaction. And this one is probably the best one, because I think if we went around the room and we would have compared notes about what we thought would bring satisfaction to our life, this one would do it. I don't know anyone that I can think of that hasn't shared with me at some point in their life how some sort of achievement in their life will bring satisfaction to their life. Some achievement. What is it? What's the achievement that's going to bring satisfaction in your life? Here's what Solomon said. He said, I enlarge my works. I build houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. He did all kinds of things. You know, I like this, though, because if you break it down, there are a lot of achievements here that some of us, if we're honest, would admit that that's one, one of the things on our list. So the first thing he says, I built houses for myself. One of the fascinating th things to me in, in the marketplace that we're in and in the construction industry is the fascination with building our own homes. The thing that will bring satisfaction to more people's lives in Southern California is to be able to build their own custom home. Isn't that the truth? Have you met people that have said that? I want to build my own house. That will bring satisfaction to my life. I want to pick out the lot. I want to build the house. I want to design it myself. I want to do everything myself. I'm going to decorate it myself. I want to do all of it because that will bring satisfaction in my life. Solomon built his own house. It took him 20 years to build, and it wasn't because he was doing it as a night job on the side. It was because this thing had, it was as plush as could be, man. It had all the bells and whistles that you can imagine in your life. It took him 20 years to build this house. He knew what it meant to build a custom house. And you know what he said about a custom house? It didn't do it. It didn't do it. Now, wouldn't it be nice to talk to somebody who went through all the aggravation of building their own custom house and to be able to go to them and ask them, hey, you know what? What advantage do you see in building your own home? What sense of satisfaction did you experience in building your own custom house? And have them look at you, be honest with you, and say, I'll never do it again. <laughs> I'll never do it again. It wasn't worth it. I'm not going to fight with the cities again. I don't have to go through the zoning commission, the planning commission. I don't want to have to get, deal with inspectors again. I don't want to deal with any of that. I don't want to deal with how much time it took and obsessed out of my life so I could build my dream house to bring satisfaction. It didn't bring me any satisfaction at all. But no, when we talk to somebody who builds a custom house, they got to kind of tell you how great it is to have a custom house. And kind of flaunt it in your face so when you walk away from it, you're thinking, oh man, if I just had a custom house, I'd be as happy as they are. And then they get in the house, shut the door, and go, oh man, I'd never build another custom house again in my life. <laughs> but we can't tell anybody that because then they think we're being foolish, right? Because the person that built it never, it never stopped for a moment to ask the person who's already had one whether that would be a wise thing to do because we've consulted with ourselves. I said to myself, I'm building a custom house, and I don't care. I don't want to hear it, and I don't want to hear anybody tell me it's not going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be satisfying. Don't tell me anything different. So we build a custom house. And then we find out custom house just doesn't do the trick. He built the temple. He built cities. He built, he made all kinds of achievements. So he said, I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. 
What cracks me up? You know what cracks me up? You know what I, I hear people? You know what's going to do it? If they just landscape their yard. <laughs> if they landscape their yard, they'll be satisfied for life. Have you ever heard anybody do that? And it's, you know, it's always a person that doesn't have any landscaping necessarily in their yard that thinks that landscaping will do it. But do they go next door to the neighbor who just put the landscaping in and said, are you now fulfilled for life? <laughs> they never do that. They say, if I have landscaping. Or, in Southern California, if I just have my own swimming pool, my life will be complete. Lord, you can take me home after that. Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> you got to understand, this guy's a swimming pool contractor. <laughs> so, he's saying, hallelujah. Well, these are all things that won't bring satisfaction. We'll talk some more about it next week. But I want you to consider it for a moment. What is going to bring satisfaction in your life? Let me just read something in closing. I want you to stop and listen for a second, just three more minutes. Because it sums it all up. We'll talk some more about the specifics of the journey that he went on that didn't bring satisfaction and compare it to where you're heading. But in, on Sunday, June 5th, 1983, in the Los Angeles Times, Richard Eder wrote a review of a secular book written by a man named Walker Piercy. Walker Piercy wrote a book called Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book. The reviewer said the author was, quote, thinking about who we are and how we got into the mess that we're in. This is his review of a secular book. And I want you to listen carefully because it ties everything together. He writes, what mess? Basically, the fact that everything we engage in, science, art, wealth, politics, war, is conducted without any real knowledge of what or whom we are, are doing it for. We have lost sight of ourselves. When we are children, we see things more or less as follows. Cows are to give milk. Mountains are to climb. Cars are to ride in. Germs are to be sick with. Children draw houses with a face out of every window. After all, how could there not be a face? Windows are for looking out of. Policemen are for helping us cross streets. Far farmers are for growing food. Fathers are for making a noise in the shower and going to work. Mothers are for smelling nice and maybe going to work. As we grow older, our perception of the physical world becomes more complex. Man, lacking a sense of himself, lacks any sense of relation to the cosmos, Percy suggests, and is therefore capable of perp perpetrating almost any foolishness or horror upon both. Artists and scientists are okay as long as they are out exercising their transcendence. When they come home at night, they are as screwed up as anyone else. The beauty or knowledge that they are quarrying for does not enlighten them much. It is familiar enough notion back through Socrates and Ecclesiastes. Percy does not actually suggest that man can know himself only through some kind of religious faith, but he does not leave much of any other possibility either. People, I just want to just close with one thought. And that is, as we understand what Solomon is trying to get to us, and that is this, that we are accountable before God. And if we recognize our accountability before God, the greatest pursuit that any of us could ever engage in that will bring lasting satisfaction is the pursuit of knowing who He is, 
what He expects of our lives, and how He would have us live it, because when we enter into that pursuit, it's a pursuit that will guarantee that you will enjoy lasting satisfaction. Anything other than that is going to leave you futile and empty, and all things are vanity, according to Solomon. What are some of the pursuits that you're going after that you think will bring, bring satisfaction in your life? We'll deal with some more of them next week. But I'm here to challenge you to consider, if you don't know God in a personal way, the greatest pursuit that you'll ever have is to come to know Him through Jesus Christ. If you do know Him, the greatest sense of frustration you'll ever experience as a Christian is trying to please yourself outside of the will of God. There is nothing that will be more futile in our lifetime than trying to please ourselves outside of pleasing God is the greatest pursuit of your life to please God. That will bring you satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the truth. We just thank you for this opportunity and this intimate time that we have to just sit with Solomon and hear the wisdom of his foolishness. God, we just thank you for that. God, help us to see the greatest pursuit of our lives is to come to know you in a personal way through Jesus Christ. And that after having done that, to understand that there's a purpose and a plan and a direction that you expect for us in our lives. God, help us not to look for ways that are pleasing to ourselves, but in everything that we do, look to please you. God, we realize you're not going to change to conform to our circumstances, but that we must be willing to conform to your will. God, we just thank you for that, and we realize that as we're doing that, walking with you, there's no greater joy or peace or contentment or satisfaction that can be found in this life than for those who are walking hand in hand with you. We just thank you for that and love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.